Well, for everyone else, let's turn in our Bibles, if we would, to the book of Genesis, chapter 2. That's Genesis, chapter 2. We'll begin our reading there at verse 4. Genesis 2, starting at the fourth verse. Hear now the word of our God. These are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens and every plant of the field before it was in the earth and every herb of the field before it grew. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth and there was not a man to till the ground. But there went up a mist from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living soul. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from thence it parted and became into four heads. The name of the first was Pison, that is it which compasseth the whole land of Havala, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. There is Bedellium and the onyx stone. And the name of the second river is Gihon. The same is it that compasseth the whole land of Ethiopia. And the name of the third river is Hedekel. That is it which goeth toward the east of Assyria. And the fourth river is Euphrates. And the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him and help me for him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field, and every fowl of the air, and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all cattle, and to the fowl of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found an helpmeet for him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs, and closed up the flesh instead thereof, and the rib, which the Lord God had taken from man, made he a woman, and brought her unto the man. Adam said, This is now bone of my bones, and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife. And we're not ashamed. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's word this morning. I said at the very beginning that our hope was that we were going to take up a single chapter every Lord's Day. And if you were with us last week, we were in chapter 2. So already we're expanding our time more than we said that we would. But I think it's important as we look at the second chapter, as there's so much that's foundational here, to spend some time and look at what the writer is doing for us. 
As the Spirit of God is giving to us this, what is very clearly a historical account, it's important for us to understand that what we have here is going to be foundational, not just for the chapter to come. Obviously, Genesis 3 looms on the horizon, but certainly what we have here lays really the bedrock, not only for the book of Genesis, but of course through the rest of the history of redemption. And so what I want us to do is I want us to take perhaps a a slower tour through what the writer talks about here with regard to the creation of man, and then leading us, of course, to the end of the second chapter and anticipating in some sense, if we have time, the third chapter as well. So our focus, first of all, is going to be back on that section that begins in the 8th verse. That's Genesis 2, starting at verse 8. And I'll read just a few verses here. It says here, And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And if you turn well, turn your attention down or just cast your eyes a few lines down to verse 15, you find these words. And the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. Now, friend, I said at the onset of our time here that our hope as we are looking through this text is to understand in perhaps a clearer way the various structures that are within the text. And our purpose for doing that is not simply to make a a basic kind of assessment of the text so that we can say that we understand its literary components. Our purpose in understanding these structures that lie within the text itself is to see what the text is emphasizing. Uh, Friend, you and I know very well that it's very common for us to emphasize various parts of God's Word without paying attention to what the Word of God itself is emphasizing. And in this section, I read to you verses 8 and verses 15 because you have here a repetition. A repetition that's not only serving a literary purpose, a repetition that's serving a very clear theological purpose. Where is man? When the Lord God creates man, he puts him, well, he creates him, rather, outside of the garden. He creates man in a place that is not so beautiful, not so bountiful, not so fructifying as Eden. And then God, out of his own freeness, takes the man who he has formed and puts him into this new garden puts him into a place that is a unique expression of divine goodness, puts him in a place that Adam did not know in his first first moments of life, into a place of higher and greater good. Now friend, that should tell us something right away. As the Lord God has brought Adam in this first day of his existence from one place to another, we need to recognize that Adam is being brought higher and higher to understand God's greater goodness. You see, God, of course, could have created man in Eden. He could have put him in the garden that was so, so beautiful and so bountiful in God's goodness. But instead, God takes him from a lower place to a higher place. Now, I am repeating myself from what we said last Lord's Day, but but it's important for us to understand what Genesis 2 is doing for us. Genesis 2 is showing man's creation is not a pinpoint Yes, man is created in a moment, but man's existence, his first moments of life, are really a progression. You find here that God is taking him from one lower place to a higher. And so we take him, of course, to Eden. Now, I want to call your attention again to another note that will help us understand why this positional change is so crucial. And that is what we have in the fourth verse. 
Now, as you're reading through the book of Genesis, you'll find in the first chapter, as we said before, that God's name that is used here is Elohim. So, in chapter 1, down to chapter 2, verse 3, we simply have in our English translations the word God. But as you note in verse 4, there's a change. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now, why is that crucial? Well, friend, as you remember, when we thought about the Tetragrammaton, the, the proper name for God, as some people call it, but really more properly the covenant name of God, the Tetragrammaton looks back to divine faithfulness, particularly in the context of covenant. And so all of a sudden, the writer, writing under inspiration of God's Spirit, turns to Jehovah as Jehovah. It uses the covenantal name of God at this moment. And that's going to be the preface for us finding Adam in Eden. It is not just Creator God that puts Adam in the garden. It is Jehovah, the covenant God, that puts him in Eden. Just a few moments' time, we're going to come back to that thought. But let's look just for a brief moment further at Adam here in the garden. We find the man here in a place of great bounty. We find him in a garden that has two trees. Of course, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And those trees have a particular sanction placed upon them. That's the thing that we have here. Which means, friend, if you're looking at Eden, you can't help you can't help but miss the idea that this is a garden that is peculiar. It has a peculiar command annexed to it. I, I think that's important as we're looking at this text. When Adam is brought into a garden, he is confronted with peculiar sanctions that are unique to the garden itself. Of course, I'm building a case here, but. But this is the covenant God bringing Adam into a garden with peculiar sanctions, peculiar laws. And that, of course, because they have peculiar trees. What I'm doing here is, I hope, is showing you that the idea of the covenant of works is built into Genesis 2 very clearly. This is the covenant God bringing Adam into a place of probation. A place of trial. I think, friend, today we have many who deny the covenant of works because they say, well, we just don't see that in the Genesis account. Um, But I think, friend, as you look at Genesis 2 very clearly, you have all of the aspects of covenant ingrained in the narrative itself. It is Jehovah, not creator God, that we're dealing with. It is Jehovah, covenant God, that we have in this text. And Adam is brought not just into being, He's brought into a garden of peculiar sanctions. And in those sanctions, of course, are annexed both the promise of life upon keeping the covenant and death upon its violation. Now, I said that we're dealing here with a progression. We'll come back to the covenant of works in a moment's time. But I want you to see briefly here what you have in this text with regard to how man is moving. We're looking here at what is likely just a 24-hour period. Man was created, made a living soul, then he was brought in the Garden of Eden. And then I want you to notice what starts in verse 18. And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him and help me for him. Verse 18 now becomes, well, really heads a new section. That section ending, of course, at the end of chapter 2, starting at verse 25. 
This section here is holding out to us this very basic idea. God has created all things good. And you know, of course, that this is something we quickly realized. The creation week was seconded always by the statement, God's assessment. And he saw that it was good. And verse 18 of chapter 2, it is not good that man should be alone. The first time, of course, the Lord really applies the language of disapprobation to part of his creation. Now, what is the Lord's response to this? The Lord has just put Adam in one of the most, well, really what we should assume is the most beautiful place in his creation. And then what does God do? He brings all the lesser creatures to man. And then know what Adam does. Adam doesn't miss the significance of this. He says here in verse 20, And Adam gave names to all cattle. Now we said before that this is supposed to be understood as a fulfillment of what we found in chapter 1. Remember in chapter 1, the Lord had said in verse 28, well, if you can go ahead of that, verse 26, Man was created that he might have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all all the earth. When Adam names these lesser creatures, it's an aspect of sovereignty that we're seeing at work. The man here is saying, as he names these creatures, that he exercises dominion. Adam here functions as God's vicegerent. In one sense, friend, as you look at Genesis 2.20, you should see something of a kind of coronation. Adam is coming into that place, that position that God has always designed him for. And you can't miss, friend, that this is still yet another step of progression. Again, if I can belabor the point just a little longer, you have Adam created out of the garden, brought into this beautiful place, a place of greater goodness, and now he comes to his coronation. And then note, that theme of verse 18 comes up again. At the end of verse 20 it says here, But Adam did not find him help me for him. Oh friend, there's a lot here, um, but we don't have time. The, the reality is, this text shows us that God, by his own design, had created man to be utterly unique. And man himself, in his unfallen state, recognizes that. Um, I could go into great lengths here about why the theory of evolution is so contrary fundamentally to a biblical anthropology. This is one of those reasons. Um, The theory of evolution, even theistic evolution, undermines this very idea that you have in Genesis 2.20. And that is that Adam saw himself as utterly unique. Yes, a creature still, but utterly unique from the rest of the lesser creatures. Now, that aside, you have, of course, the creation of woman, verses 21 to 25. And you can't miss either that what the Lord is doing here is he is showing once again his goodness to Adam. Again, this is a progression, isn't it? You find here Adam is coming to his coronation, and he finds himself still lacking something. The reality is, of course, God could have created Adam and Eve simultaneously, just as God could have created Adam outside of the garden or inside of the garden freely. But what is the Lord God doing? Of course, it was no surprise to Jehovah that Adam would not find a helpmeet for him in the lesser creatures. Adam is being taught something here. Man is being tutored, as it were, in the goodness of God. You see, what Adam is learning in this first 24 hours of life 
is that all goodness is to be sought from God alone. As soon as Adam draws breath, God leads him along to show that all goodness is derived from him. And if Adam would seek any greater goodness, friend, he is to seek it only from God. Uh, That brings us, doesn't it, back to the covenant of works. The covenant, of course, had attached to it those sanctions. Obedience leading to life. Violation leading to death. And why is it that Adam should acquiesce? Why should he long to be part of that covenant? I think many Christians don't meditate much on this. But if you're looking just at Genesis 2, there is an answer to that question. Friend, how could he not long to see even greater goodness from this God? Who has shown him over and over again, even in an unfallen world, that God is capable of showing even more goodness. You see, Adam should long, of course, to have God's greatest good. That is, fellowship and full and unbroken communion with Jehovah. He should long for that at this stage. And so when Adam is brought into the covenant of works, friend, he was brought as a willing party. Genesis 2 should indicate that much, at least to us. He was brought as a man who had already tasted that God is good to his creatures, even good to man peculiarly. But as we look at this text, we, we should go back just for a moment and look at the sanctions itself. And we'll close with this. When we think about a covenant, of course, we think about three divisions, right? Um, because alliteration is something that I've adopted for some reason. Parties, provisions, promises. Those are the three parts of a covenant. Okay? So in Genesis 2, you have those three, those three elements. You have parties, God and Adam. And Adam, of course, standing as representative of all of his natural children. The provisions, right? What are those provisions? Well, of course, that promise. Life attached to, well, the provisions, first of all, being the commands. You shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then the promises are, of course, life upon obedience, death upon violation. All three of those elements, friend, are easily derived from Genesis 2. There are many, as I said before, who deny the covenant of works because they don't see it in the text. But friend, as you look at the fundamental aspects of covenant, it's hard to miss this. But I will say this too. As you look at the provisions, those commands, what do we make of them? Isn't it, doesn't it seem a bit peculiar that the covenant of works, its sanction, if it will, is tied to the single tree? That is the tree of the knowledge of evil. I want to read two quotes to you, uh, and we'll close with this. These are two quotes, I think, that answer that fundamental question. What really is going on in the garden with this tree? So first of all, there's a question. The question goes, I cannot but marvel that God, in making the covenant with man, did make mention of no other commandment than that of the forbidden fruit. So the question is, why is it that this particular tree and this particular fruit is forbidden? And why does that form really the nexus for the whole covenant? Here's the answer. Do not marvel at it, for by that one species of sin, that is eating the forbidden fruit, the whole genus or kind is shown. As the same law being more clearly unfolded doth express, and he's referring to Deuteronomy 28 and Galatians 3 as well. And indeed, in that one commandment, the whole worship of God did consist as obedience, honor, love, confidence, and religious fear. 
together with the outward abstinence from sin and reverent respect to the voice of God. Yea, herein also consisted his love, and so his whole duty to his neighbor. So that, as a learned writer says, Adam heard as much of the law in the garden as Israel did at Sinai, but only in fewer words and without thunder. It might help if I illustrate that point, but if I could summarize first. What the writer is saying here is, in the command to abstain from the forbidden fruit, you have really the sum total of the law of God comprised. That's the point. So that's why the writer writes, Adam heard as much of the law in the garden as Israel did at Sinai, just in fewer words and without thunder. You might say, well, hang on a second. How can I see that? The writer goes on to put it this way. I know we're getting a little ahead of ourselves, but I think it will illustrate the point a bit more clearly. The question runs, well, did he, in eating the forbidden fruit, break all the Ten Commandments? The answer Yes. And here's how. Now, this is a lengthy quote, but I want you to trace in your mind as I read the Ten Commandments in their order. Okay? First of all, he chose himself another god when he followed the devil. Secondly, he idolized and deified his own belly. As the Apostle's phrase is, he made his belly his god. Thirdly, he took the name of God in vain when he believed him not to be true. Fourth, he kept not the rest and estate wherein God had set him. Fifth, he dishonored his father who was in heaven, and therefore his days were not prolonged in that land which the Lord his God had given him. Sixth, he massacred himself and all his posterity. Seventh, from Eve he was a virgin, but in eyes and mind he committed spiritual fornication. Eighth, he stole like Achan, that which God had set aside not to be meddled with. And this, he, and this itself is that which troubles all Israel, even the whole world. Ninth, he bare witness against God when he believed the witness of the devil before him. Tenth, he coveted an evil covetousness like Amnon, which cost him his life and all his progeny. Now, whosoever considers what a nest of evils here are committed at one blow must needs with Muscalus see our case to be such that we are compelled every way to commend the justice of God and to condemn the sin of our first parents, saying concerning all mankind as the prophet Hosea does concerning Israel. O Israel, thou hast destroyed thyself. My friend, we'll close with that, but just briefly, do you see here how really the sum total of the moral law of God is comprised in this section. And you see here then, as we look forward to Genesis 3, that when Adam sinned, it was not a light thing, not a small thing at all, but the whole law of God was defied in that. Well, as we look to next week, God willing, we'll be taking up um, hopefully the entirety of the third chapter. And I would encourage you as we go through this study, would just read the chapter ahead of time, um, even on the Lord's Day morning, um, and and then we will hopefully continue through this book for the rest of the year. Well, let's close with prayer, and then we'll be finished for this hour. Almighty and ever-blessed God, we come before you, Father, knowing that we, as an Adam, have all broken the covenant. 
Father, how insidious is sin, even at its inception. How horrid, O gracious God, for man to be exalted to such a high place, to know so much of the goodness of God, to see, to be taught, that all goodness is to be expected only through God, and yet to fall so quickly and so miserably. Father, we ought to be a people who mourn Adam's first transgression. But Lord, as we're told, we can't help but miss either in this text. That we see a picture of our own sin. How often through the course of a day do we see tokens of your goodness? How often do you lead us time and again through providence to look only for good from your hand? And yet knowing by experience the curse, yet knowing what it is to fall away from God, how quickly and how willingly do we sin? Father, we pray that this then would lead us to grieve our own sin as we ought, but also to be thankful for the second Adam, who stood in all things in which the first Adam fell. Father, we thank you that we may be found in him, that you do not leave us to the dust only, but you gave us life in the Lord Jesus Christ, who kept all of your law perfectly, and who even died, that those who were under the curse might have life. Father, we do thank you for Christ, and we do ask that this Lord's day that we would rest in him by faith. Father, fix us upon him, we ask, and to do especially, we pray, as we look to the hour of him. Bless us as we ask in all things, praying in Jesus' name. Amen.